This is History West Midlands. Today, Birmingham's vibrant jewellery quarter, on the northwestern edge of the city centre, is home to more than 19,000 residents, many of whom live in sought-after, refurbished workshops and factories, memories of the area's important industrial heritage. But look beyond these apartments, restaurants and wine bars, and you find that the jewellery industry that made the area world-famous is not only still here, it's thriving. Indeed, the quarter has the largest concentration of the trade in Europe and produces at least 40% of the jewellery made in the UK. So why did the jewellery trade put down such strong roots in Birmingham? We asked well-known chronicler of Birmingham's history, Professor Carl Chin, to explain the trade's origins, to tell us how its fortunes have ebbed and flowed, and to explain the jewellery industry's contribution to the story of this city of a thousand trades. Birmingham's jewellery quarter is famed nationally and internationally, but locally its importance can be taken for granted or even overlooked, as can that of the jewellery trade itself, which has a long-standing connection with our city. That lack of attention is not a new phenomenon. By the mid-19th century, jewellery making was regarded as one of the four main Birmingham trades. Along with the making of guns and buttons and the brass trade, it flourished above the rest. But very little was written about it. That is surprising for such an important industry which traces its origins to the 18th century. Although goldsmiths worked precious metal in Birmingham during the later Middle Ages and 17th century, the modern jewellery trade originated in the 1700s when the workers of the town became famed for the making of small metal goods such as buckles, buttons and a variety of toys. The staggering assortment of wares embraced by the term toys was highlighted in Sketchley and Adams's Tradesman's True Guide and Universal Directory of 1770. It pronounced that An infinite variety of articles that come under this denomination are made here, and it would be endless to attempt to give an account of the whole. But for the information of strangers, we shall here observe that these artists are divided into several branches as the gold and silver toy makers who make trinkets, seals, tweezers, toothpick cases, smelling bottles, snuff boxes, and filigree work such as toilets, tea chests, inkstands, etc., etc. The tortoise toy maker makes a beautiful variety of the above and other articles, as does also the steel, who makes corkscrews, buckles, drawer and other boxes, snuffers, watch chains, stay hooks, sugar nippers, etc., and almost all these are likewise made in various metals, and for cheapness, beauty and elegance, no place in the world can vie with them. As for Birmingham's jewellers, these artists held the first rank among the mechanics for the elegance of their work. They are the makers of necklaces, earrings, rings, buckles, sleeve buttons, and studs, seals, etc. There were 23 of them. Significantly, eight of them had an additional trade, such as filigree worker, toy maker, button maker, metal roller and watch chain maker. This feature emphasised the adaptability of Birmingham's skilled workers and the overlap between its small metal trades. Two of the jewellers were also lapidaries, 
Along with eight more in that trade, they cut and polished large stones for snuff boxes, knife handles, cabinets, seals, rings, buttons and other items. Yet despite the interchange between the trades, these jewellers were a distinct group, although they were spread out across Birmingham and were not gathered in one locality. Two other men were given as silverers, one as a gilt and silver box maker and another as a silver caster, while some buckle, button toy and candlestick makers also worked in silver. However, the largest producer of silver goods was Matthew Bolton, first at his works at Snow Hill and then at his sewer manufactory in Handsworth. A man of many parts, he employed artists and commissioned designers to fashion expensive silverware that appealed to the wealthy. Concerned that his silver products had to be assayed at Chester and that silversmiths there might steal his designs, Bolton led a campaign for Birmingham to have its own assay office. He was also an astute publicist who realised that if the worth of Birmingham's precious goods was assured through rigorous testing and hallmarking, then their appeal would be enhanced. Bolton was successful and in 1773 the Hallmarking Act founded the Birmingham Assay Office for which the anchor was chosen as the Hallmark. Although recognised as a Birmingham trade by the end of the 18th century, jewellery making was not yet one of the town's main industries. Writing in 1866, the astute observer J.S. Wright explained that at the commencement of the 19th century, it is probable that some 400 artisans were employed in 10 or 12 manufactories. Those working in gold made principally seals, keys and watch chains, whilst the silver workers produced shoe, knee and other buckles, as well as considerable quantities of comb ornaments set with conspicuous paste or imitation stones. Still, the trade prospered, in spite of buckles going out and other freaks of fashion, as Wright expressively called it. So much so that by 1819, one contemporary described Birmingham as the nation's great manufacturing market of jewellery. He added that in reality, it was there that most of what passed for London-made jewellery was actually manufactured. Indeed, by then the trade had expanded so that it had 74 jewellers, according to Wrightson's directory of 1819. Then, according to Wright, in 1825, the great catastrophe which fell upon commerce generally in Britain almost annihilated the jewellery trade so that it did not revive to any considerable extent for 10 years. The evidence, however, suggests that the revival was swifter, for Wrightson's directory of 1829-30 listed 150 manufacturing jewellers along with 40 goldsmiths and working jewellers, although there was some overlap between the two. In addition, there were five gold beaters, two jewellery stampers, 23 lapidaries and 37 silversmiths. Amongst them was John Morton of Molan Street, who was advertised as a manufacturer of gold and gilt jewellery with an agent in Hatton Garden, London. Edward Day of Bristol Street was in the same trade and he also had premises in the capital. The jewellery trade continued to grow throughout the 1830s, but by the turn of the next decade it was struggling. It seems that it was faced with two interconnected problems. According to the Birmingham Journal, in September 1844, locally made jewellery was unfashionable amongst the nobles and wealthy of the land who preferred the taste and elegance of the French and German artists. The reason for that lack of appeal was made plain by Charles Dictionary of Birmingham, which decried as old-style ugliness the Birmingham jewellery of that period. 
with their trade in a depressed condition and the livelihoods of an estimated 5,000 families threatened, some of the local artisans decided to take action by securing royal patronage. This was not a new idea for Birmingham's manufacturers. In 1840, a similar deputation had presented splendid specimens of gilt buttons to Prince Albert in the hope of securing his patronage to revive that trade. One of its prominent members was Joseph Stinton, the licensee of the Grand Turk in Ludgate Hill. An advocate of Birmingham's manufacturers, it was at his premises that a group of workers in the gold, gilt and black ornament jewellery trades met in the summer of 1844. They resolved to present to Queen Victoria specimens from the various branches of their trades, strenuously urging that she would be graciously pleased to patronise the same. A committee of nine was appointed to approach the employers to gain their support and financial backing. Their chairman was a skilled man, Samuel Nicklin, and along with Stinson, he would also be in the deputation that would meet with Prince Albert. The leading firms were supportive and the specimens for the royal couple were made. Importantly, it was decided that the style of workmanship should be that of a national design in preference to one purely classic. This was felt to be more appropriate for gifts from the working men of Birmingham to their Queen. As the date for the reception of the deputation approached, excitement grew in Birmingham. Then, at the beginning of May 1845, the almost finished goods were exhibited in the town hall for two days. So immense were the crowds that went to see them that hundreds were not able to gain admittance. Consequently, a third display had to be held on Monday the 5th of May. The celebratory nature of the event was highlighted by the appearance all day of the band of the six Enniskilling Dragoons. Finally, on Thursday the 28th of May 1845, the deputation of jewellers waited upon Prince Albert to present to him and Queen Victoria what the Illustrated London News pronounced were beautiful specimens of Birmingham jewellery. A special praise was lavished on an armlet given to the monarch, the centre of which was pronounced to be the most splendid thing ever produced in the town. It displayed a diamond sprig upon blue enamel surrounded with nine splendid pearls in blue enamel settings, each setting surrounded with an oak leaf, the leaf and the acorn gracefully and uniquely forming the border. The band part of the armlet consists of blue and gold enamel, with the emblems Peace, Plenty, Forever, the rose, thistle, shamrock and leek filling up the different compartments. Each compartment moves upon a flexible joint, and diamonds and rubies form the tout ensemble of the clasp. The other specimens for the Queen were a brooch, a pair of earrings and a buckle for the waist, all of which were as exquisite as the armlet. As for the Prince, he was presented with a watch, chain and key and also a seal that was designed as the Warwick vase and which stood upon. A pedestal supported by Mercury and Ceres. Grapes spring from the top of the seal. The tendrils of the vine gracefully forming the loop. The key is in tasteful keeping with the seal. The vine and the oak are represented as springing from the same soil, the foliage of each being perfectly developed. A pendant acorn chastely forms the termination of the hanging foliage in the centre of the key. The chain, key, armlet, brooch and earrings were executed at the premises of Thomas Aston, jeweller of Regent Place off Caroline Street, with the buckle and seal at the St Paul Square business of John Balleny, gold, silver and black ornament manufacturer. It was stated that the value of these elegant presents exceeded 400 guineas. 
They were presented in what were described as exceedingly beautiful jewel cases made of papier-mâché and which were chastely but richly inlaid with enamel and gold. These were manufactured by Thomas Lane of the Royal Papier-Mâché and Patent Pearl Glassworks by special appointments to Her Majesty and His Royal Highness in Great Hampton Street. However, the inside of the cases had been fitted up by James Cobley, a pocketbook and dressing case manufacturer of Great Charles Street. The deputation that presented these splendid articles included James Bourne, the High Bailey for Birmingham, and its two MPs, Richard Spooner and George Frederick Muntz. Spooner was Birmingham's only Conservative MP between 1832 and 1886, but he had long been a defender of Birmingham's trades. So too had been the Liberal MP Muntz, who read with impressive effect the memorial to Prince Albert from the artisans of Birmingham's jewellery trade. In itself, this was a fine specimen of penmanship and was written by a gentleman engaged in the establishment of Mr Gillett, the celebrated steel penmaker. This memorial explained the motives of the skilled workers and appealed through His Royal Highness to Her Majesty to take into gracious consideration the present depressed condition of the operative jewellers of Birmingham and entreating the Queen and the Prince Consort to set the example of wearing British jewellery on such occasions and to such an extent as may meet the royal approval. The memorialists being convinced that such a benevolent and well-timed example would be productive of the happiest effects, not only to the loyal artisans of Birmingham, but also to thousands of their fellow subjects, employed in the manufacture of articles similar to the specimens, in different parts of the British Empire. In conclusion, it was emphasised that in the execution of these jewellery ornaments, no less than 22 trades or callings had been engaged. Prince Albert listened to the memorial with marked attention. Then the caskets were opened and the specimens were displayed to him. He expressed his admiration of the ingenuity, taste and skill exhibited in the designing and manufacturing of each separate article. And at the same time, he inquired how it was that fashion could, as he put it, perversely persist in going abroad for articles of bijouterie when it could command so admirable and exquisite a manufacture of them at home. Prince Albert concluded by assuring the Birmingham men that he knew that the Queen would fully share his own admiration of the costly presents with which the loyal and ingenious artisans of Birmingham had favoured them. The backing given to the working men by the employers, leading political figures and the people of Birmingham emphasised how important the jewellery trade was now, both to the economic well-being of the town and to its reputation for artistic and beautifully crafted wares. And it seems that the presentation did have positive effects. It showed that Birmingham's jewellers could fashion exquisite jewellery which appealed to the royal family and to members of the court. In so doing, favourable national attention was gained for the trade. There was one other result, one that was more enduring, a recognition of the importance of design. Birmingham's most noted jewellers had revealed that they could make stylish and elegant jewellery to compare with the best from the continent. That success acted as a spur to other local manufacturing jewellers to realise that they also needed to enhance their designs. They were successful in doing so, and by 1849, Allen's Pictorial Guide to Birmingham could stress that The precious metals are here wrought into a vast variety of elegant forms, 
seals, pencil cases, brooches, chains, and every article comprehended by the term jewellery are manufactured in a style that, for solidity and elegance of design, cannot be excelled. The quantity of silver used in the manufacture of pencil cases, thimbles, chains, etc., may be estimated at about 3,000 ounces weekly, or 160,000 ounces per annum. Sixteen years later, in September 1865, an informed commentator in the Daily News highlighted the importance of design in an appraisal of the Birmingham jewellery trade from a London point of view. He had personal experience as he'd been part of the visit to the town that year by the British Association for the Advancement of Science. In his account, he drew a clear distinction between the real and the sham trade, although he stressed that the Birmingham men involved in the latter do not for a moment attempt to palm off their imitation gems and gilt settings as jewels to the first water and pure gold. They simply make these things to get fair profit. As for the real trade, in no place other than Birmingham was there a wider employment for students of design. That was made clear at the large manufacturing jewellers establishment of T and J Bragg in Victoria Street, where there were usually between 30 and 40 apprentices each year. All of them had to show some amount of skill in drawing, and each was bound, through their indentures, to attend the Birmingham School of Art and School of Design. Founded in 1843, its classes were held in the new street premises of the Birmingham Society of Arts and it arose from the cooperation between that organisation and the Government School of Design in London. The value of design at Braggsies was underscored by the constant employment of a special artist in the making of new designs and the London correspondent recognised many which were familiar to him in the shop windows of Regent Street and Bond Street. One in particular was the design for the brooch presented to the Princess of Wales by the Ladies and Gentlemen of Wales, which was exhibited at one of the great jewellers in the capital. The result of such an investment in design over the recent years was that the quality of Birmingham's jewellery had been improved in value, both artistically and intrinsically. This development was reflected in the increase in workers in every branch of the trade, from the 500 employed 30 years previously to the 7,000 by 1865. They provided about half of all the ornamental jewellery required in the United Kingdom, whilst in the Warstone Lane factory of W and J Randall alone, almost £30,000 worth of gold watch chains was made every year. As for the jewellery, that of the best class had risen in price, not because of the gold used, but due to the increased amount of beauty bestowed upon the work. Consequently, good gems had also increased immensely in value. An amethyst, which in the Birmingham trade was once worth about £1.50, could now fetch about £80. Pearls and turquoise similarly had increased in value. Since the fashion for setting them in bosses has come into vogue, the jewellers of Birmingham often buy their own jewels, travelling all over the world for the purpose. Their pearls and amethysts perhaps at Ceylon, their turquoise Alexandria. Their cameos are purchased largely at Borneo and Naples, where also they buy coral in large quantities. The more costly gems, however, are constantly sent to Birmingham to be set, and I saw today at Messrs Bragg's several very splendid brooches set with brilliance and enamelled the value of which would be from four to seven hundred pounds.
There were other factors influential in the remarkable rise of the jewellery trade in Birmingham, from the low of the mid-1840s to the highs of the 1860s. These included the discovery of gold in Australia and California, the vastly increased wealth of England and her colonies, and a desire for personal adornments, which had been boosted from 1854 by the legalisation of lower standards of gold alloys, which magnified the market for less costly jewellery. The result was, as J.S. Wright pronounced, an unparalleled prosperity to the jewellery trade, which, by 1866, gave employment, directly and indirectly, to a larger number of people than any other trade in Birmingham. As a result, he asserted, it was a poor workman who could only earn £1.25 a week. Rather, the average wage could be considered as between £2.50 and £4 a week, with some men earning much more. These were very high wages, considering that as late as 1900, the poverty line was given as around about a pound a week for a husband, wife and moderate family of three children. As a result, according to Wright, The working jewellers occupy a higher social position than other artisans. They reside in comfortable dwellings, their clothes are generally good and do not betray the working man. This may be attributed to the cleanly nature of their work. They are not given so much to dissipation as some classes. Quiet and continued application rather than muscular strength is necessary, a steady hand being indispensable, and all tend to the formation of more orderly habits. He also drew attention to the great number of small but independent manufacturers with between five and fifty workers, a phenomenon that was a peculiarity of Birmingham's trades in general and which lent itself to social mobility. A keen observer, Wright thought that nine out of ten of the master jewellers then in business originally had been workmen. In fact, the principles of 12 contemporary independent concerns, each employing a number of men, had all been employed as apprentices or workmen in a manufacturing which itself had been established within the previous 25 years. This progression was facilitated by the relatively small sum required to start up as a master, for all that was needed was a peculiarly shaped bench and a leather apron, one or two pounds worth of tools, including a blowpipe, and for material, a few sovereigns and some ounces of copper and zinc. His shop may be at the top room of his house, or a small building over the wash house, at a rent of two shillings or two shillings and sixpence per week, and the indispensable gas jet, which the gas company will supply on credit. With these appliances and a skilful hand, he may produce scarf pins, studs, links, rings, lockets, etc., for all of which he will find a ready market on the Saturday, among the numerous factors whose special business it is to supply the shopkeepers throughout the country. The jewellery trade exhibited another marked feature of Birmingham's manufacturing structure, that of the subdivision of labour, which had arisen from the application of dyes and machinery in the production processes. In the past, the whole article had been made by one man, ensuring its costliness. But now, owing to the subdivision of labour and the use of machinery, articles formerly made in units are now produced in hundreds. Let us take a common earring or locket, for example. Under the old system, the gold would have been beaten out by hand to the thickness required and then forced into the proper shape by repeated hammering. The edges of the back and front filed that they might join correctly, after which it would be soldered and finished, 
all this being the work of one person. Now a die is cut or engraved, the gold rolled at the steam mill to the requisite gauge, then blanks or discs are cut out by a screw press, stamped and cut to the exact shape desired, also by the press. All this being done so rapidly that twenty are produced in the same time as one was formerly made. Yet there was one facet in which the jewellery trade did differ from so many in Birmingham. Unlike the pen, button, pin and other industries, few women were employed. Wright thought that their lack of widespread involvement was somewhat singular and contrary to what might have been expected, because jewellery work was clean and required delicate manipulation, aspects which would appear to have adapted it especially for women. Nevertheless, they were only employed in the making of guard chains and in ordinary press work, where they cut out or formed the roughs. By contrast, outside the workplace, a considerable number of women indirectly obtained their living through the work of jewellers by making the paper and leather boxes used to protect and set off the finished article. The revival and rapid expansion of the Birmingham jewellery trade was accompanied by one other noticeable feature the emergence of a jewellery quarter to the northwest of Birmingham town centre. This was located in that part of Hockley between Great Charles Street in the east and Icknield Street in the west and Great Hampton Street in the north to the line of Summerhill Road, the Sandpits and the Parade in the south. Much of this land was owned by the Colmores and it was developed slowly from the late 18th century, especially after the opening of St Paul's Church in 1779. By Kempsom's map of 1810, some buildings had appeared up to George Street and Hall Street, and by the plan of Birmingham of 1832, streets on the Carver Estate between Frederick Street and Summerhill Road had also been cut out. Soon, this activity was followed by building on the Vise Estate between Warston Lane and Great Hampton Street. Out of 150 manufacturing jewellers listed in rights in the directory of 1829-30, just over half were in the emerging jewellery quarter. 21 years later, White's directory included over 200 jewellers and goldsmiths, a handful of stampers and 31 silversmiths and manufacturers of fancy articles. The great majority were gathered close to each other. This concentration was encouraged by two main factors. First, the subdivisions of the jewellery trade meant that articles had to be passed from one hand to another and that process was made easier, quicker and more cost-effective if the various skills were close at hand. Second, the preponderance of small masters meant that most preferred to live in houses behind which were their workshops. From the 1850s, the affluence of such men allowed many of them to do this and to join the bigger employers who had already been drawn to the pleasant locality around Camden Hill above St Paul's Square, where there were sizeable and well-built residences upon the gardens of which could be built workshops or small factories. In December 1865, for example, a capital front dwelling house at 53 Vise Street was advertised for sale in the Birmingham Daily Post. It came with a spacious and well-lighted three-storey manufactory to accommodate about 80 pairs of hands, with enclosed yard and appurtenances, the whole forming a most compact and desirable jeweller's premises. The desire for master jewellers to live and work in an attractive setting on the edge of town was quickly recognised by the owners of the large houses which were dotted around the district, 
encouraging them to advertise them for sale or to let specifically to jewellers, as indicated by an advertisement in the Birmingham Daily Gazette from July 1867, which offered for let. 37 Vice Street. Suitable for jeweller or any light trade. The shopping is newly built. The house just thoroughly cleaned, painted and papered. Four years later, in December 1871, a larger house in Vice Street was advertised. With a width of 12 yards, it was double-fronted and boated six rooms and two kitchens, whilst it was also very suitable for the erection of light and eligible shopping, the term then used for a workshop. The author of a major study of jewellery making in Birmingham, Sheena Mason, interviewed the niece of the prosperous jeweller Edward John Cluley. She recalled that he had started making gold brooches and such like at his home at 111 Vice Street. His office and long workshop were at the back. He did very well for himself. He and Auntie lived at the house there. It was a big house, but I don't remember there being any garden. There was a stable at the back and the stableman let me take sugar to feed the horse. Uncle had a lovely trap and a beautiful high-stepping horse. At the house they had a cook and a housemaid. It was a great big billiards room. In the 1860s, this house and workshop had belonged to John T. Holden, an electroplater. It was then taken on by various jewellery manufacturers until clearly moved there in the early 20th century when he was noted as a locket maker. As an identifiable neighbourhood, Birmingham's Jewellers Quarter was first mentioned in 1860 by the author Walter White. In all around the reeking, he stated for the most part, Birmingham was a town of workshops, through which a person might walk from street to street, noting the change of aspect with the change of trade. Thus, amongst the pearl butter makers, there was a suspicion of makeshift. But by contrast, the jeweller's quarter looked clean and respectable. Six years later, J.S. Wright found it curious how the jewellery trade had so located itself in the St. Paul's district that there was scarcely a workshop to be found anywhere else. All the more so, as a generation before, this area had been covered mostly by the Guinea Gardens that then surrounded much of Birmingham. This jewellery quarter had developed quickly after the difficult years of the mid-1840s when the future of Birmingham's jewellery trade had been threatened. By proactively staving off depression, the town's manufacturing jewellers had transformed and expanded their trade through the development of their skills, their ability to adapt to changing fashions, their success in publicising their craftsmanship, their keenness in embracing design and their aptitude for hard work. These features continued to play a vital role in the growth of the jewellery trade locally and by 1913, one authority reckoned that it employed 70,000 people directly and indirectly. The next year, the Birmingham Daily Post asserted that the local jewellery industry was regarded by many as the most important of its kind in the world. However, now it was faced by a critical situation, war. The trade was indeed badly affected by the First World War, during which jewellery making all but ceased as businesses turned over to munitions work, as they did during the Second World War. The effect then was made clear in March 1942 at a luncheon of the Birmingham Jewellers and Silversmiths Association, when Ivan Short announced that We have turned from teapots to tommy guns, from rings to wings, from bangles to bombs, and from bracelets to bullets. 
In the post-war years, the jewellery trade faced numerous difficulties as it was buffeted by recessions, the imposition of a purchase tax and the growth of imports, whilst the jewellery quarter itself was threatened with destruction. In a period of the widespread clearance of whole areas and of redevelopment fixated upon high-rise buildings and American-style freeways, some planners and politicians decried the district, as one of them said, as an obsolete anachronism. They believed that it needed to be scheduled as a redevelopment area so that the old buildings could be torn down and replaced with modern, efficient factories. It seemed that the forces of destruction would win when part of Vice Street and Spencer Street was demolished and replaced with modern workshop units and the Hockley Centre. Better known as the Big Peg, it opened in 1971, but fortunately by then, opinion had begun to swing to conservation and renewal. Since then, many Victorian buildings have been restored and the jewellery quarter has managed to retain its identity as a distinct neighbourhood. There have been noticeable social and economic changes, though. The number of manufacturing jewellers has declined, whilst that of retail jewellery shops, restaurants, bars, residential apartments and museums has risen. Consequently, many people now regard the jewellery quarter as just a tourist destination. It is not, and none should overlook the ongoing importance of the making of jewellery. In 2016, this was made clear by Gregory Fatterini, the managing director of Fatterini of Frederick Street, the renowned firm of gold and silversmiths, badge makers, medalists, sword makers, trophy makers and insignia makers. In the Birmingham Economic Review, he explained that there is a business cluster in the heart of the jewellery quarter, which is rarely understood as it is mostly invisible. This cluster has deep roots and offers large companies like Fatterini access to specialist craftsmen, as well as to suppliers of raw materials, specialist machinery and tools and equipment. It also affords cooperation with other companies to service very large national and international orders. These benefits are enhanced by the presence of an internationally recognised jewellery school, an assay office and the National Association of Jewellers both for the economic well-being of Birmingham and its historical integrity, the manufacturers of the jewellery quarter should be valued and encouraged in their business endeavours, for the jewellery quarter is a unique neighbourhood built upon the skills of our city's jewellers for over 200 years. You can find out more about the Birmingham jewellery trade in Carl Chin's accompanying article An Industrial Hive, Birmingham's Jewellery Quarter, which is published on our website, www.historywm.com. To ensure you don't miss future programmes, register for our newsletter at the website and download the History West Midlands On Air app at the iTunes App Store.